This is Rabbi Ethan Tucker of Mechon Hadar. Parashat Naso, 5776. Gender and the Priestly Blessing. Last week, I laid out three models for responding to the challenges faced by the Kihuna in an increasingly gender-equal world. I framed my analysis for an audience that is deeply committed to the substance of Torah and process of halacha, while also invested in the correctness and necessity of the cause of gender equality. I suggested that one could resolve this tension by marginalizing and eliminating the presence of the kehuna in ritual life, by faithfully maintaining it as a vestige in its traditional form, or by seeking halachic possibilities for rendering it more gender equal. This week, I'd like to explore the third model with respect to birkat kohanim, the priestly blessing traditionally offered by the Kohanim in the context of the public Amidah. It's clearly possible to find ways to evade Birkat Kohanim altogether by picking up on and expanding the Ashkenazi diasporic tradition that sharply limits its performance and sees no real obligation to hold the blessing at any given time in particular. One can also toe the line on the essential maleness of this ritual, even as it may become more and more of an anomaly in the context of gender-blind leadership and participation. We discussed the advantages and disadvantages of such approaches last week. Instead, I'd like to explore options for including Benot Kohanim in this ritual, thus allowing it to retain a role, perhaps even a central one, in our public prayer life, while still firmly anchoring it in the kehuna and eliminating at least the optics of some of the patriarchal hierarchy that lies at the heart of the historic Jewish priesthood. My hope is that this will not only be a potentially practically useful conversation, but that it will also illuminate some of what is at stake in these sorts of discussions, even in communities that are unlikely to take this sort of step anytime soon. The priestly blessing is grounded in the following passage in this week's parasha. The Lord spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to Aharon and his sons, saying, So shall you bless the Israelites. Say to them, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine face towards you and show you grace. May the Lord show you favor and grant you peace. They shall place my name on the Israelites, and I shall bless them. A very specific three, five, seven word formula is offered here, with each of the three lines featuring God's name in the second position. Yivarechecha Hashem v'yishmerecha, Ya'er Hashem panav elecha v'chuneka, Yisa Hashem panav elecha v'yasem lecha shalom. This text is meant to be spoken to the Jewish people by Aharon and his descendants, whereby God's blessing will flow out to the people. The details of its implementation are more opaque, and there are explicit and implicit discussions surrounding how frequently it's meant to be done. Whatever the precise scope of the obligation is, it is clearly directed to Aharon Uvanav. As we saw last week, the language of Banav, while often plausibly a gender-neutral term for children, is often taken in the context of the Kiuna to refer specifically to sons. The target of this commandment would thus seem to be the male Kohanim, a class that excludes not only all non-Aaronides, Levites and Jews undistinguished by descent, but also the female members of the priestly class, Benot Kohanim. Anyone interpreting the Torah in a traditional rabbinic mode would agree that there is no obligation 
for anyone other than male priests to bless the people. Of interest to us, however, is whether it is permissible for those other than male Aaronide priests to participate in the priestly blessing. Even if there's no obligation outside of male Kohanim, is there an option that can be exercised? In the longer essay, we explore the question of participation by a czar, someone not from the priestly class, and use this discussion as a basis for exploring the question of a Batkohen's participation. Suffice it to say for now that there is a wide range of opinions on this topic, but despite this, no viable practice of Zarim participating in Birkat Kohanim ever emerged. Nonetheless, there is clearly some degree of wiggle room here, knowing that there were many theoretical approaches advanced, even if none of them triumphed practically. This is important as we consider the question of Benot Kohanim. Even if they are no different than Zarim, might these positions, permitting non-priests to participate, play a role in justifying a more egalitarian approach to this mitzvah? As we saw last week, Benot Kohanim are included in certain parts of the Kiuna and excluded from others. How do we legally conceptualize this complex state of affairs? Are Benot Kohanim essentially Zarot, who are nonetheless sometimes given privileges on account of their adjunct and dependent relationship with male Kohanim? Or alternatively, are they fundamentally Kohanim, who are nonetheless excluded from certain key elements of priestly privilege and responsibility? Or is any attempt to come up with a neat classification doomed to failure, since Benot Kohanim occupy a unique liminal space in the Jewish priestly system? Many sources discussed in the longer essay make clear that it is perfectly coherent for a community to refuse to allow female participation in Birkat Kohanim, even as they might advance egalitarian norms in many other areas of ritual. Birkat Kohanim is certainly a place where it is defensible to say that preserving this aspect of the Kiuna requires limiting it to those to whom it is addressed, Aharon and his male descendants. But I'm interested in a slightly different angle. Yes, there is clearly a basis for excluding Benot Kohanim from the priestly blessing. But is there also a basis for including them? Is there room for a community to rely on another model? Formulated more conservatively and to the point, is there a basis for not turning away a Bat Kohen who is motivated to come up and bless the community? Here I believe the answer is yes all around, based on a number of elements. First, there is a strong basis for not treating a Bat Kohen as a Zara. See, for example, Mishnah Truma, chapter 7, Mishnah 2, where it's clear that a Bat Kohen, even when married to a non-priest, is considered to be of priestly descent when consuming Truma that was not hers, since she is exempt from the usual penalty imposed on a non-priest. Second, the language of Daber al-Haron ve'el-Banav need not be read here as excluding Benot Kohanim from joining in, as is shown by, for example, Tosafot on Psachim 49a, where they apparently don't see the phrase Banav in another context to be inherently gendered. Even if a Bat Kohen should be thought of as a Zara, this is our third point, there is some basis for allowing Zarim to participate in Birkat Kohanim, as we mentioned above. And fourth, unlike Zarim, 
There is no real reason that a Bat Kohen cannot say the Bracha prior to the recitation of the priestly blessing, which specifically references Kiddushator Shal Aharon, the sanctity of Aharon, making it an invalid blessing for a non-priest to say. But sources like Rambam make clear that Benot Koranim said precisely this phrase when they themselves ate truma. All of this paves the way for an argument that takes advantage of two axes of doubt, known in rabbinic literature as a sveik sveika, and explained earlier in greater depth in our essay on Chayesara. This kind of argument here would minimally make the modest claim that Benot Koanim, who wish to offer Birkat Koanim, need not be discouraged from doing so. And that argument would play off of two legal axes as follows. First, it is possible that Benot Koanim were never barred from offering Birkat Koanim in the first place. They're not Zarim in the full sense of the term, and their lineal sanctity distinguishes them from non-priests in significant ways in the context of a number of ki halachot. There's a solid argument for saying that the main objections to allowing Benot Koanim to participate in other aspects of the Kiuna are because they will displace male priests, which is not a concern in the context of Birkat Koanim, where they would simply be joining other priests already up to offer the blessing. Second axis is even if all of that is wrong, and Benot Koanim should be treated like Zarot for the purposes of Birkat Koanim, it may well be the case that a Zar can indeed offer Birkat Koanim, at least in certain contexts. And those two claims are explored in greater length in the longer essay. As in all cases of a Sveik Sveika, one would normally not rely on either piece of the argument on its own. If there were an unequivocal, absolute prohibition on the participation of a Zar in Birkat Koanim, agreed upon by all, then the argument for Abat Kohen's inclusion based on the first argument here might well be insufficient. And we would certainly not simply allow a Zar to participate in Birkat Koanim based on the second argument here. But with the two of them combined together, there are enough combined arguments to create space for the Bat Kohen in the context of this ritual without overly redefining the parameters of the Kiuna. Again, even if one would still be hesitant to adopt this argumentation in order to actively encourage the participation of Benot Kohanim, I think it is certainly sufficient to allow those who take the initiative to continue to do so. And again, for those interested in the practical aspects of this argument, I urge you to read the longer essay with its much greater detail and documentation. The Kiuna is a patriarchal institution with a deep past. It cannot be made completely gender-blind. My argument here has revealed again and again how hardwired this gendered element is within the Jewish priestly discourse. For those for whom that is untenable, and for whom the blessings and benefits of the Kiuna are expendable, my arguments this week will likely not be helpful. They'll have to find ways to evade the kiuna and render it as invisible as possible. In the case of Birkat Koanim, they will seek to avoid doing it whenever they can. Similarly, some will find the efforts to stretch the kiuna to include women to be inauthentic. For them, female participation in Birkat Koanim will smack of a disrespectful modernization of an ancient ritual, one that will not only falsify it, but will fail to do its religious work in the present. 
They, even if they are sympathetic to more egalitarian ritual, will suffice with a vestigial patriarchal practice in these areas, even as women attain greater heights and prominence in leadership of other aspects of the community. What I've offered this week is an example of the egalitarianization model that I detailed last week. Many of us who are deeply attached to the ongoing vitality of Torah in general, and the Kiuna in particular, are reluctant to find ways to evade mitzvot that can be fulfilled. We also feel it is unstable to leave overly patriarchal elements in place, knowing that the vestigial can often turn out to be more influential than we might think. Confident in the multivocality of Torah and curious about the potential range of its application, those in this camp will search for ways to make at least the optics of the kiuna more compatible with a gender egalitarian community. I hope I've shown that with respect to Birkat Kohanim, there is perhaps quite a bit more room to maneuver in this regard than one might have thought. And for those who are unconvinced, I hope this analysis has nonetheless clarified the pathways that lie before us. May we see a day when the worship of God is restored to its highest heights in our communities, with each person playing a meaningful and appropriate role.